Hey everyone, Eric here. A lot more people in Washington and other capitals are focusing more attention on what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa, the Middle East, the Americas. But this isn't an issue that you can simply jump into and expect to understand what's going on. Things are moving just way too fast. And this is a story that really doesn't fit neatly with a lot of the prevailing narratives. And that's why the newsletter that we produce is so important. It's the day-to-day tracking of this story that will help you get up to speed. We meticulously go through hundreds of sources every day to bring you a concise digest of the day's top China news from Africa and throughout the global south. And then we deliver it straight to your inbox Monday to Friday at 6 a.m. Washington time. Try it free for 30 days. See if you like it. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, it has been a while since we've talked about debt, so we are overdue on that, and there is a lot going on. Let me just bring you up to date on a few items that have passed just this week, and this is really a story that's moving very quickly. Uh, Let's start in Chad. The International Monetary Fund is calling on private creditors, and this is something that we're hearing in a number of different countries, that the IMF wants them to come to some kind of debt restructuring deal in order to pave the way for an IMF bailout or some kind of IMF package. Now, the situation there is getting critical, according to the director of the IMF's African department, Mr. Abebe Selassie. He went on to say that the situation there is, in his words, and this is his word, unsustainable. And that's a very similar description that we hear going on in Zambia. Now, obviously, the new president in Zambia, Hishilema, he is trying to put together his team in order to quickly negotiate a deal with the IMF. He has come out repeatedly and said that coming to an IMF deal is by far his top priority, in part because he has the burden of a $750 million Eurobond payment that is coming due next year. And Hishilema has said that if he does not have an IMF deal, he will not be able to make that $750 million payment. And so Zambia is going to need a bailout if it's going to be able to really achieve some level of financial stability. Interestingly, Hishilema has not said really much at all about the Chinese debt, China and Chinese creditors own about $3 billion of Zambia's known $12 billion debt. And I say the word known because one of the other problems in Zambia is this problem of hidden debt. And Hishilema has has indicated that the amount that is due is actually far more than what we know. And also Zambia, if you recall, last November was the first African country in the pandemic era to default on part of its debt. 
Now, not all the news is bad. There was also some good news this week out of Kenya, where the Paris Club creditors have agreed to extend the debt repayment holiday that they've been giving since the beginning of this year, and they're going to take that right through the end of the year. Now, this is a courtesy that the China Exim Bank did not provide the Kenyan government and has since forced the Kenyan Treasury to start repayments of its loans on the Standard Gauge Railway. Those repayments have begun in the current fiscal year that just began. Kenya is forecast to repay around a billion dollars on those loans. Now, Kenya is by no means alone in facing financial difficulties. About 40 percent of sub-Saharan African countries are now at risk of some kind of debt distress. And that was an estimate that was done before the pandemic. So the situation has no doubt gotten worse since the pandemic is now fully underway. Somewhere between 25 and $30 billion of public debt service payments are due this year, with payments to China alone eating up almost a third of that. Now, that may sound like a lot, but don't forget that China is by far Africa's largest bilateral creditor. So let's take a look very quickly at where the rest of the money is going to go, because it's not all going to China. Only about a third is going to China. Here's what the folks at the China-Africa Research Initiative, how they laid it out. 23% are going to go to other bilateral creditors, mostly to repay those low-cost concessional loans. 20% will go to multilateral financial institutions like the World Bank. And bondholders are set to receive another 20% of debt servicing repayments. So, Cobus, the problem is that countries still need to keep borrowing in order to help pay for new infrastructure, help them fight the battle against COVID-19 to buy vaccines, and in some cases just to keep the lights on. But you can see that they're shoveling a lot of money out the door at the same time, and the risk premiums, that is the cost of borrowing, is going up. So they're really in a tough spot. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation, and because you know, because successive um, waves of COVID also for you know force um, certain sectors to shut down periodically, it's very difficult for them to to kind of get get economic activity back up to speed in order to you know to to generate more revenue. Um, add to that the the difficulties that many African governments have in in collecting revenue domestically, um, and it, it it means that they have very few options, and at a moment when they really need more options. Not only to deal with with short term issues like hopefully short term issues like 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 COVID, um, but also much longer term issues like climate change. Well, let's get a perspective now on the debt crisis. Uh, Greg Smith is a leading emerging markets analyst with an expertise in African debt specifically. He's a former World Bank economist and has advised a number of African governments. Uh, Most importantly for our discussion today and our purposes, he's the author of a fantastic new book, Where Credit is Due, How Africa's Debt Can Be a Benefit, Not a Burden. Greg joins us on the line from London. A very good morning. Congratulations on the new book, and we're thrilled to have you on the show. Good morning to you both. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, Greg, you are somebody I've been wanting to interview for quite some time. I remember last year I put a request in, so I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, in part because I really want to get your take on the private creditor side. But putting together you your book, you have traveled to 26 different African countries. You've met with African scholars, policymakers, even Chinese ambassadors. You've lived in a number of African countries. I mean, you've worked in African finance ministries at the World Bank and an IMF mission. So you have a really broad-based perspective on the current debt crisis in a number of African countries. Put into context some of the data that I was just reading off there. Where are we today in terms of the debt crisis? I think it's always a challenge to talk about Africa's 55 countries all at once. So 
So what I was doing um, while writing the book was to travel as much as I can and try and understand some of the nuances and some of the differences between the many different countries. But at the same time, try and detect some themes that would apply to groups of countries. And that could be China's lending, it could be market access to issue the euro bonds in the international markets, or it could be a, still a reliance on support from um, the international financial institutions like the IMF, World Bank or African Development Bank. So that's the big challenge. And I think whenever we, we talk about crisis, there's, there are some countries sadly in crisis, but there are also some countries doing well. And there are a lot of countries that are somewhere in between, and, and, and that's the challenge. And I think one of the key distinctions I use in my book is that some, I look at some African countries as emerging markets, such as South Africa, Morocco, Egypt, and Nigeria and Mauritius. And then I look at some frontier markets, which have made the step over the last decade into the markets, Ghana, Zambia, Kenya, and about and 14 others. And those countries have a really diverse debt stock. The landscape has really shifted in the last decade. So they've now got many different types of lender with many different types of debt. And then we've still got a number of countries which are, are mainly reliant on borrowing from official sources, those insta insta international financial institutions, and, and many still that are aid dependent. So when we talk about crisis, it's, it's it's difficult to apply it to everyone, but but there are, through the COVID um, pandemic, um, debt scars that are building up and that will put pressure on countries and increase the risk of a crisis over the next few years. So you know, kind of you 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 mean we mentioned at the beginning that um, that it's so much of the lending is is being done in order to to um, deal with short term issues, while longer term issues are also looming. So I was wondering um, if you could give us an idea of like roughly where are we standing in relation to uh, our progress towards the sustainable development goals. Um, you know, kind of how and and particularly how has the debt crisis at the moment and the COVID crisis kind of impacted that progress towards the sustainable development goals? Yeah, it's 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 not it's not been a great twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. It's 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 been really really tough. Um, and my view on the sustainable development goals is that a very very high bar was was set. And when you looked at the financing needs that would be needed to achieve those goals. It was a huge amount of money. We were talking billions and billions and billions for African countries to get there. So I like the SDGs because they are bold, because they are ambitious. But in terms of progress towards them, it's going to be really, really tricky because there are a huge number of SDGs and a huge amount of money. And one of the the things about the SDGs was that five or six years ago now, when we they were being discussed and designed, um, there was there were talk about raising financing from the private sector. Then the talk was billions, not billions, it was trillions actually, and that private sector should come in and provide this money so we can get there. Over the last couple of years, this pendulum has shifted almost against private finance. And the discussion last year was all about debt suspension and why private creditors were not willing enough to take the first losses. So we sort of see this pendulum of trying to attract a large amount of money to seeing, um, 
to argue that actually this debt problem looks so worrying, people should take losses. And that, that's a real challenge. And it would be wonderful if there were abundant, long-term, calm capital in the world that were flowing to African countries. But that just sadly isn't the case. And so any capital African countries are, are taking on is a compromise. Some of it comes with lots of policy conditions. Some of it comes with um, difficult contracts. And some of it might come in large volume and without the conditions, such as the market stuff. But then that's really expensive and, and puts huge burden on, on the, the African country's budget. So it's, it's really tricky. But the last two years have been worrisome for, in all the leading indicators, be it social or poverty. Given China's disproportionate importance in the African debt market, it's not surprising that you devoted an entire chapter of your book to China. Let's turn our attention now to the Chinese role. Before we get to the big picture, I'd like to focus on Zambia in particular, because that's one where I know you've been following the situation very closely. As I mentioned at the top of the show, President Hishilema is in the process of building his team that's going to be negotiating with creditors. He's made it his top priority to engage the IMF. There are rumors that he is in discussions with Chinese creditors. And let's remember that unlike other African countries where one of the major policy banks is the dominant creditor, say in uh, Angola, it's predominantly the China Development Bank, I think if that's correct. And then in Kenya, it's primarily the China Exim Bank. In a place like Zambia, there are state-owned enterprises, there's private lenders, there's corporate lenders, there's uh, and then the policy banks themselves. The problem in Zambia, though, and this was something that goes back to last year in the default, is the lack of transparency on what the terms, conditions, and the extent of Zambian debt to Chinese creditors is. The bondholders said, well, if we're going to give you a a deal and we're going to take what they call a haircut, we want to know how much you actually owe. The IMF, and backed by the United States, was saying, listen, we don't want to do a debt restructuring deal because we're concerned that you're just going to backdoor cash right into the Chinese. So the lack of transparency is a hallmark of Chinese lending, Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing today in the new Hishilema administration about the situation in Zambia. I think, I think first of all, it's, it's, it's a wonderful result to see the Zambian youth in particular turn out in such numbers to demand better, demand work opportunities, to demand better public services. And I think that, first of all, that, that, that's absolutely wonderful. And we've got a new government with a real opportunity to try and turn the economy around from what's been a really tough few years. Um, I, so far, you know, I've glanced at the names that have been put up for cabinet and in the central bank, and they all seem incredibly sensible. I, I've lived in Zambia and spoken to many economists over the years. And I think one thing that strikes me is that there's, there's a lot of skillful people with a lot of economic knowledge. But in my opinion, these people have been somewhat ignored by the political leadership over the last few years. And going back to 2015, when debt numbers started to get out of hand, when Zambian think tanks started pushing back, when Zambian experts started speaking up, they were, they were under intense pressure. And the government, the political leadership at least, decided to, to keep borrowing at a very fast and rapid rate, despite the warnings from their own countries. So my main hope at the moment is that we have a government that uses its experts and wants to turn their knowledge, turn their advice, turn their ideas into a solid strategy. Okay, you've been an advisor, but what would you advise the Hishilema government on what to do? 
first of all, to listen to Zambian experts, we've got to solve this this debt problem. Obviously, we had the default last year. The, the debt burden is huge. I think one of the first things to do is to, to, to get the full numbers out. And I think um, we've been hint- there's been the story of hidden debt for many years in Zambia. I think sometimes this argument is overplayed because one of the things I write about in my book is, is how difficult debt numbers are. You know, debt numbers are very difficult to compile. And, you know, in a debt stock, the amount of debt a country has, you have what's been dispersed. So if you took a Chinese project that was going to take five or seven years, we, we might know that this project was a billion dollars. But in, in any one year along those construction years, only some of that adds to the debt. So you often get different calculations of debt. Some people are looking at the amount dispersed and some people are adding up all those big contracts in the newspapers and coming up with many different numbers. Um, and then a lot of debt numbers are ratios. You know, you compare debt to the size of the economy, you compare debt to revenue. And that's a real challenge. And those ratios can jump, particularly what, when the um, exchange rate moves very fast. And we've seen the Quacha, Zambia's currency, lose a lot of ground in the last few years. But wonderfully, on the news of the new government, it bounced back. And so that's a real positive for the Zambian debt numbers, because a lot of the debt is borrowed in dollars. And so the stronger Quacha means it'll, it, it's, it looks like less in local currency. So we've got that positive. The negative we have is that the government went on a borrowing binge in the run-up to the election. You know, the, the central bank has just published numbers. And when I look at the April, May and June numbers, there's an epic amount of domestic borrowing, which the government did to boost its expenditure in the run-up to the election. So this needs to come out. And then the other two headaches in Zambia are arrears, which means the government hasn't paid someone in time. So there are fuel arrears, there are arrears to contractors. And after a while, these arrears become debts. So we keep an eye on that. And then lastly, state-owned enterprises. So we've got Zesco, which is the state-owned electricity company. And you have to make a choice. Is this, should this be on the government's balance sheet or is it a separate entity? And these decisions are, are, are quite tricky because there are assets in the form of hydroelectric dams that generate electricity and also liabilities in the form of debt. So the main point I want to make is debt's really complicated and and Zambia needs to get clear numbers out so that domestic accountability can take place and, and also so that the IMF can start doing some work and Zambia might be able to talk to them about a programme. And then very lastly, Um, The point I make about Zambia is that I often think Zambia has been driving a sports car down uh, a potholed road. They've they've been driving at fast speeds, swerving, going around corners. And and that was never sustainable. That car looked like it was going to crash. And I think what we need to do is shift to a sort of more robust vehicle for these types of roads. And Zambia needs a strategy for the investment it needs in human capital, health and education. But it also needs a strategy very much linked to the available financing. And that's been the problem. So what would be wonderful from the new administration is a strategy grounded in the available resources and what financing Zambia can raise, rather than a 200 page wish list of all the things that Zambia might do had it had the resources. Because if there are priorities, it will be easier for Zambia to borrow for the right projects and it will be easier for creditors to come up with the right ideas. So, so what are some of the options that would be open to Zambia, and particularly if we if we focus on on some of the some of the projects that 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 
you know, kind of. Um, so some projects are, are, are classified as, as as having immediate kind of uh, kind of profit that can be, you know, that 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 can make them more attractive to to lenders. But what about the the really kind of socially important ones like water treatment facilities and so on that that don't necessarily show such a kind of a clear path to profit? Like what what are what are some of the options open for for Zambia and global South countries who need to finance that kind of the, those kind of projects? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we can find examples in every country. But in Zambia, there's Kafuila, which is a, a dam that will provide electricity to the grid at an affordable cost in an environmentally clean way. So that to me is a wonderful investment. But at the same time, you know, I've travelled to that dam. But when I'm at the other side of the country, I went to see a, a large project which was building a new Copperbelt Airport not far down the road from an existing airport. And it, and it begs the question, why didn't you just expand the existing airport a little bit by instead of building a new one. So you see some very good choices alongside some very strange choices. Um, these infrastructure projects have a chance because there is they generate revenue. But, but as you say, there's a, a huge amount of social projects. So water and sanitation requires capital, but it's difficult to get that back in the form of urban levies or, or taxes. You know, not many African countries are collecting enough at the urban level to be able to afford um, decent water and sanitation provision. And then we go when we go into education and healthcare, it's easy to put up a, a building and call it a clinic or put up a building and call it a school. But unless you have well-paid, well-trained staff, you're not going to get the quality of healthcare. You're not going to get the quality of education you need. And that's really tricky because borrowing for sort of recurrent or consumption um, is tricky. And that's where you, you need to raise domestic revenue. But to raise domestic revenue, you need a larger economy because you can only tax people who are struggling on low income so much. So and that's where this infrastructure comes in. So you've got to focus on building a larger economy, attracting investment so that you can generate the exports and the revenue to be able to deliver better public services. And all of this is easier said than done. But that's the plan. And, and Africa, African countries mostly have clear infrastructure deficits. And we need to find a way these can um, these can be filled and and one thing I'm looking at, and one thing the books talks about, is is countries borrowing with purpose. And at one end, that's not just borrowing because you can, but but really working to um, to ensure that the right projects are built first, and that you know you're essentially building roads to somewhere. And I think um, once you can sort of get the right priorities and build systems to manage your own public investment, the countries will get better results. And then very lastly, as well as attracting capital, there are huge capital leaks from the African continent. And some of this is illicit. Some of this is criminal linked to drugs, trade or corruption. But a lot of this is is perfectly legal. It's people thinking, I've got some savings and I don't feel they're safe here. I'm going to park them offshore so that I gain a bit of return in a safer manner. But what we really need to do is for people to think, I want my savings to be put to work in my country, knowing that we're going to help build the country and also attract a return for those people. And that that plugging of capital leaks is an essential part of the of the challenge. Well, let's stay with the theme of things that are easier said than done. I hear what you're saying about how the Zambian government should be more transparent about what it owes. But the big problem, and you detail this in your book, 
is that many of the Chinese loans come with very strict non-disclosure agreements. And the rumors that we're hearing is that if the uh, Chinese are going to take a haircut themselves, they're going to insist on continued non-disclosure agreements. And so what happens when the fact is that the Zambian government has its its hands tied in terms of how much it can reveal? Because at the end of the day, the private creditors have said, we're not going to negotiate until we know exactly what's on the table. If you could, if I could push you a little bit on this question of the non-disclosures, because that does seem to get in the way of everything. Nothing happens until we know exactly what's owed to who. Yeah, absolutely. And But my one of my views is Zambia's debt problem has been in plain sight. There have been a number of calls over the last few years that there is large amounts of hidden debt. I think that, um, you know, and as your podcast has reported over the years, there a lot of myths can circulate, particularly on Chinese debt. And that's because of the, the lack of comprehensive information. So, you know, that's how we get talks of asset seizures that don't necessarily exist. And I think one thing for for Chinese lending, the majority of Chinese lending is for projects. So it's not budget support that goes into a country's fiscus. China is providing swaps, which means that they're swapping um, currency with central banks. And they are providing a few what are called discretionary loans where the country can choose them can choose exactly how it spends it. But for the most part, Chinese lending is linked to projects. So if there's going to be a large amount of hidden debt that is contracted and ongoing, you could at some point see a building site. So when you drive around the country, you you can you you can see these projects. And so and and so the only way you can have a massive hidden debt scandal is for something of quite tragically like the Mozambique situation, which was which was outright corruption and included a difficult area for people to understand, which which is military equipment. So it's difficult to to sort of to say that there are all these hidden loans for dams, roads and airports if those dams, roads and airports don't exist. So we need to get the magnitude of the problem right. There could be contracts that have been designed, of, of, that have been signed, that have not started yet. That's plausible. But at the same time, a new government, if it didn't like those priorities, could agree to tear up some of those contracts and, and or, or refocus that financing if they didn't think they were their priority. So there is a tail risk of a Mozambique situation, but it remains a tail risk. And we say that, and we can say that risk exists for many, many sovereigns with um, with with low credit ratings. But for the most part, the biggest headaches in debt is what do you exclude? What do you include? The fuel arrears, the electricity, um, parastatal or state-owned company. And these are the headaches across all African countries. I've had these debates in Ethiopia about whether the telecoms company should have been included in the debt. I've had these debates in Senegal. Senegal revised up their debt to GDP about two years ago as they became more comprehensive about these state-owned enterprises. So these become, I think, the biggest headaches. It's not about hidden debt, but it's it's, it's sorry, it's as much about definition as it is about hidden debt. Looking back at at the Zambian experience, and then also the you know kind of some some of the other kind of cases of, of debt distress, um, you know we 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 saw um, uh, some complaints in twenty twenty when when the the G twenty's uh, debt service suspension initiative came out. 
because it wasn't covering um, it wasn't covering private debt um, and eurobond debt and so on. Um, so if if you look back, um, wh- was there some kind of way in which private debt could have been incorporated, wh- wh- or like and moving forward, like what what kind of instruments should be developed in order to deal with kind of debt crises, particularly relating to to bond debt, where it's it's you know you're not dealing with just one bilateral lender. Yeah, it's 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 good to look back, and I I think I credit all of those working in 2020 on these fixes because we had to do it really quickly. The pandemic came as a surprise um, when it hit global proportions, and then suddenly there was this massive concern. So if we think back to March 2020, there was an incredible amount of uncertainty. So some of the most bearish views came out in March and April last year when people were very worried. People thought um, Africa was going to hit by a massive wave of death and cases. People thought economies were going to be devastated. People thought remittances, that's the money people sent home, would seize. And there was this massive concern there would be many, many defaults in, in 2020. Now, the benefit of hindsight. So what happened was an incredible amount of Federal Reserve support to the American economy and equally in the Eurozone and some other large economies that sort of kept financial markets from falling into distress. So first of all, a global financial crisis was avoided by those swift actions. And in the African context, we the first wave was, was, was horrific, but not as bad as people thought. But these, this second wave, which hit over the start of 2021 and this Delta wave at the moment are worse. But at the same time, economies did have a rough spot last year. But the catastrophe predicted in early in the year was was averted because remittances actually held up and imports dropped. As countries' economies got smaller, the external pressure dropped, the trade pressure, the trade balance, because emerging markets imported a lot less. So we got to a stage where actually suddenly defaults weren't as imminent as people thought initially. And then it was about providing a bit of a boost so countries could deliver on the support to their citizens that were was being delivered in Europe or America. And we did that fairly well as a global community, but not well enough. And and I think the early rhetoric in the, the debt sustainability, um, sorry, the debt suspension initiatives were all creditors would be involved and all creditors would be involved willingly because we had no other option. But by April, May and June, the markets opened up and many emerging markets were were tapping the markets and raising capital at very low interest rates because global interest rates are very low. And that was supported by the Federal Reserve's actions in the United States. So suddenly the markets were open and a lot of African countries thought, do I really want to force myself into a debt restructuring when I don't know I need it? So actually, there, were, there was pushback from several African countries and many African countries were nervous about signing up to the DSSI, at least initially, because they worried about what it would do to their reputation, what they would do to market access. This changed when a few um, countries stepped up with large amounts of debt in Africa, but you could also say the same about, um, for example, um, Pakistan and a few other countries globally. So... And it became less of a taboo to, to sign up to this suspension and therefore more countries signed up. Now, in the end, very few countries asked their creditors for relief. Actually, 
got the bondholders together and said, and the loan holders and said, I want relief on my bonds. A few did. Um, there were six sovereign defaults last year, tragically. Um, we had Lebanon, we had um, Ecuador and Argentina. In Africa, we had Angola and Zambia. And then we had two smaller sort of debt problems in Suriname and Belize in Central America. But the point was, six is huge, but it's not the catastrophe we initially thought. So in the end, I think in Africa, to the best of my knowledge, the only country with Eurobonds to ask Eurobonds, would you please give us a, um, a, a coupon holiday like Belize had, like Ecuador had. But one of the concerns at the time was that the bondholders didn't feel that same question had been asked of other creditors. So they actually abstained from that vote. And that consent solicitation, as it's called, which is jargon for will you give us some relief, was was passed. And then the country decided it couldn't cope. And it went into default by not paying the coupon on one of its bonds. So hindsight's wonderful. How do we redesign this? Um, the common framework is something that's come out of the G20 as a solution. I think you... The, one of the difficulties is that has been the rise of new creditors, China, India, Gulf countries, and a few others who are lending more and more across the globe. And these countries are outside the, the mechanisms of the Paris Club, which is the club of sort of traditional lenders, if you like. But as China has scaled up, it's outside this forum. So the G20 was the only time America and China were around the table together. And I think so... In what needs to happen next, we do need coordination. But what we're also realising is in 2021, we're, we're more than halfway through and we haven't had a sovereign default yet. So we're not moving into a systemic debt crisis, most likely. But the risk of one in the medium term, say two, three, four years, is heightened because of the debt scars of the crisis. So we do need to work on that. And in my view, the common framework isn't going to be enough. To me, it's a placeholder until we can think of something better. I'm glad you brought up the DSSI and the common framework because there's a lot of frustration in Africa among a lot of stakeholders that the international community has just completely messed this up. Let's look at the DSSI. So that's the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. 73 countries around the world are eligible for it, 38 of which are in Africa. But up to now, they've only rescheduled $5.7 billion of debt, which is really paltry when you look at the big scale. And that's worldwide, by the way. Of that, $2.1 has been done by the Chinese. But there's been a lot of frustrations in the U.S. and Europe that the Chinese are abiding by the letter of the DSSI, but not by the spirit of it, because they're not working collaboratively with other G20 members and instead engaging bilaterally with their borrowers. And that's been a point of tension as well. But the fact is that the debt stocks haven't gone down. As you pointed out, the private bondholders have not gotten on board. And really, at the end of the day, people like Vera Songwei, who's at the UN, she's been calling with all these great ideas, and all of them just seem to fall on deaf ears. We have not seen any really pioneering initiative. The DSSI seems to be the best that the world can come up with. And yet, even the head of the World Bank, David Malpass, says, unless we deal with the quantity of the underlying debt stock, how much is actually owed, all you're doing is kicking the can down the road for these countries to have to pay back even more because it's just accruing and building up because they're borrowing today as well. Give us your honest assessment of the DSSI and the common framework, which, again, is... 
as you said, it's just a placeholder. But if that's the best the world can offer, I'm not as optimistic, I think, as you are. Um, I, th- I think that, yeah, the, the DSSI was very, very small. That initiative provided some helpful money to some very small economies, but it, it was very small. We, we could have done much better. I think that we, that's been complemented by a small amount of debt relief by the IMF. And it's been complemented by a huge amount of concessional lending, all of these rapid financing initiatives, which threw money. Because I think the, the key thing in a crisis is it's not necessarily about debt relief. It's about getting money, what we call net financing flows. So getting more money to flow to you than you have to pay out. By, by stopping any money flowing out, you might also stop any money flowing in. So it gets tricky. But I think the work of the IMF, um, pushed in many ways by the likes of the UN Commission for Africa and people and African finance ministers campaigning, w- was incredible. And the speed at which people worked on the DSSI, the speed at which people worked on those rapid financing is incredible in really difficult times when people weren't in the room together and were connected by Zoom connections on difficult lines. So huge amount of respect for all that work, but we could have done much better. I think the key problem to me is someone's got to pay for this. And I think a lot of the ideas about improving the quality of African debt, and that could be through someone supporting it with, you know, backing it with collateral or or even just more money flowing so that we can build vaccine centres in Africa. There's a lack of people wanting to put up the money. And you talk about spirit, but when it comes to creditors, I don't think we can rely on spirit. You need carrots and sticks. You need sweeteners that induce people to the table, and you need a stick to scare them from walking away from the table. And when I look at the... um, the the crisis of the 1980s for Latin America, an emerging markets crisis. You know, you have a problem. It started with Mexico's default and a lot of countries were in trouble. And in those times, it wasn't bonds. It was loans from American and global commercial banks. And that crisis put the American financial system at risk. So in about four or five years, they, they had a couple of failed attempts. There was a Baker plan that failed. And eventually they come up with the Brady plan. And this Brady plan was named after um, the head of the U.S. Treasury so that the U.S. Treasury would support it. And they provided the money. They provided the collateral to allow countries to get the capital they needed. The problem we have at the moment is who is prepared to put the money down on the table? Who's prepared to put up the collateral? And this is a time of crisis. But, you know, the UK government has cut its aid budget. So, we, we, we haven't got an inherent risk to the global financial system like we had in the 1980s. And we haven't got that 2005 rhetoric about doubling and quadrupling aid, quite the opposite. So we're in a tough spot where no one's willing to put up the money. I think some people have been incredibly creative with solutions, but until someone's ready to put up the money, I don't think we'll have a flow of sufficient capital. You pointed out the the need to pay for all of these kind of short-term and medium-term issues, like not only COVID mitigation, but also um, also all, all of the all of the other issues really related to the sustainable development goals. One of the big problems I think that that is is facing. Um, Climate mitigation um, and, and and the kind of longer, much longer term kind of uh, development goals is the fact that that a lot of the a lot of these kind of green assets like like intact ecosystems or like big large scale forests 
um, that we, that the world as a whole need for climate mitigation are also located in very poor countries um, where there's, there's obviously there's, there's a lot of like issues around around um, management and governance, but there's also just simply the, the kind of big temptation for a poor country like the Democratic Republic of Congo or the, or, um, you know, Ghana, for example, to just simply sell off those those kind of those those assets on the market, um, you know we we've seen discussions around instruments like um, like uh, uh, debt for, debt for climate swaps, for example, um, debt for ecosystem swaps. W- what kind of instruments do you do you see coming up on the horizon that might make that kind of support of of keeping keeping intact e- ecosystems as they are um, more more sustainable? Absolutely. And then one of the things I talk about in the book is that to get better borrowing, we're, we're going to have countries needing to borrow with purpose. And that's to think very carefully about who they borrow from and for what purpose. And it's my view that the countries that will be able to launch a sustainable brand and, and advocate for clear use of proceeds to, to climate adaptation, to climate emergency mitigation, to improving social goods towards the SDGs, and preserving biodiversity, etc. If a country can really deliver on that brand, I think it will attract more longer term and calm capital. And I think there's, there's sort of two parts to this. There's countries that are doing well, they're not in crisis, they have a, a wonderful biodiversity they want to protect, pr- um, protect or a wonderful um, high, you know, um, renewable electricity project that they want to deliver on. And they can attract financing for these things. And there's, there are trillions of dollars in global capital markets that could be mobilised. And it's my, my view that these, these trillions need, want to be mobilised too. We've just got to try and match this up. And, you know, as global savers, so it's the 1980s were about US and European banks lending to Latin America. Bonds at the moment are owned by all sorts of people. It's less about banks and more about global savers, pensioners in different countries, even in African countries, who ultimately are the owners. And these people who are making long-term savings are demanding more that what that they don't just make a return on their investment, that they're not investing in coal, but they are doing things that are environmentally and socially good. So we have an opportunity. The worry is in the short term, people do things in a tokenistic manner. We have problems of greenwashing, which is jargon for saying things are green and they're not actually that green. And we've got a worry of, of a debt crisis. So, But if we can get this right, I think there's a huge opportunity for long-term calm capital. Then there's another sort of country that's in a debt crisis. Take Zambia, for example, but I can also look across the, the ocean at Belize or I can think about um, other countries that might, as part of a restructuring, offer, say to creditors, if you take more of a reduction in what we owe you, we're going to do environmentally good things with that saving. And, you know, it could be following Seychelles down the route of a blue bond, or it could be following Egypt down the route of a green bond. But I think this is so we've got it as a potential solution to a restructuring. But again, credit enhancements will be needed. Someone would have to provide some guarantees, some capital to get that going. But we have got a huge opportunity. At the moment, Seychelles blue bond was just 15 million. I think the, the some of the the bits Gabon have signed this week in the media to protect forest are 20 or so million. But we've got to make this scalable and, that, and that's going to need a lot of work. But it remains a very big opportunity. 
Very quickly before we go, what's which are the one or two countries in Africa that you think are really just kicking it, doing a great job, managing this crisis well, getting through and, and balancing all of the demands on their budget, the public health, the debt, all of this? What are one or two countries that you think are doing a great job? Yeah, I, I can't think of a country globally who's done it done it perfectly. No one has managed to do everything. But given the circumstances, um, and including from a debt perspective, Ivory Coast and Benin stand out in Africa as countries, in my mind, that are making a huge effort. Where Credit is Due, How Africa's Debt Can Be a Benefit, Not a Burden. It's the book that's out in some markets, but not all. So if you are in Lagos, there's bookshops there that are carrying it. But if you're in the US, you're going to have to wait a little bit. Greg Smith is the author. Greg, tell us a little bit about the kind of rolling availability schedule of the new book if people want to buy it. Um, that's right. So we've, we've published in Europe and Africa through Hearst Publishers and Oxford University Press will be publishing the book um, in November in the Americas and, and through their academic channel. So I'm looking forward. I've seen it. Friends have communicated that they've managed to buy it in different African bookshops, which makes me very proud. And um, hopefully by the end of this year, we've done a lot more events and, and I've been able to share the messages and I always appreciate feedback and hopefully this is the start of uh, um, an insightful conversation. Well, you can also buy it on Amazon in the paperback. They're taking pre-orders now for uh, $34.95. So that's actually a reasonably priced academic publishing rate. So I complained bitterly over the years about the $90 paperback book from the academic publishers. So it's great that uh, that it's somewhat affordable. Hopefully it's going to be out in other formats as well, like Kindle and even in audiobooks. Uh, so congratulations on the book. We'll follow up with you uh, later in the year to see how it's going and to kind of gauge some of the reaction and get an update on the situation that's rapidly changing. You are very active on Twitter as well. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and some of the book events that you're going to be holding in the coming months, where can they find you? I'm EM Debt. That's at E-M-S-O-V Debt. And I'm always happy to have a conversation. Fantastic. I'll put links to Greg's Twitter handle and also the Amazon link in the show notes. Greg Smith, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Kobus, it's so refreshing to talk with somebody who's got the kind of perspective and experience that Greg has. I mean, he's been on the ground in almost half of all African countries. He's been in the room with the World Bank and uh, the Chinese ambassadors and whatnot. So I think that's great. I'm looking at it from a very different perspective here. I'm looking at it from the fact that I just don't see that the issue of African finance and debt is a priority among the international community. And you look at the past couple of G20 meetings that they've had, and debt hasn't even been an issue that much. They've kind of moved on. Yeah, that was last year's issue. They're talking about healthcare. The United States is focused on China and, and it's really sunk to the bottom. But yet we still haven't seen any progress in terms of either reducing the debt stock or fundamental restructuring of the debt. The best that the international community is doing is simply delaying the repayments. Like we want our money back. So people give a lot of crap to the Chinese for being so tough on debt. But at the end of the day, the IMF, the World Bank, the Paris Club creditors, they haven't really done much more other than just say, you can pay us back next year. And to me, that's like, okay, but that doesn't really come anywhere near a solution. Now, I think there is a moral hazard here that there is not a big appetite in Paris Club countries and within the IMF itself to simply say, okay, you're forgiven of the debt, even though 
One African leader after another has been calling for that. And to be honest with you, I got to feel a little bit uncomfortable with that too, because African countries 20 years ago went through this whole exercise of being forgiven for the debt. Now, to be fair, and I can hear people in my head right now saying that African countries prior to the pandemic in many cases had done everything right. The debt to GDP ratios were modest, even low. They were managing their finances quite well. This was a black swan event. That's one of those events that happens once in a billion years. So there was no way to foresee what was going to happen. That being said, we see the lack of transparency in Kenya by the attorney general who's refusing to publicize and to make public the the contracts on the standard gauge railway, even though the Kenyan constitution calls for that. We see the lack of transparency in Zambia, same in Ethiopia about the lack of transparency on the debt. And to me, that's very frustrating. So I think there's a lot of blame to be spread all around. But at the end of the day, the people getting screwed the most are African taxpayers who have to pick up the bill on all this stuff. Yeah, it's very distressing. The um, You know, there's clearly, I agree with you, there's lots of things that, that African governments could do to, to help the situation and, and, and you know, mandating, um, you know, larger scale transparency would, would definitely help. Um, at the same time, I, I also agree with you that before the pandemic, the like most African countries were doing most things right, or they, they, were, they, they were, you know, kind of had a good record. Um, the, you you know, kind of a case like Zambia is an outlier. It's not. It's not. It's you know that isn't the case in all African countries, and 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 it's really important to point that out. But I think one of the biggest issues, like more fundamental issues, is just that that you know. Africa needs a lot more financing. It needs a lot more financing for lots of different things. Um, and the, the, you know, the, the fact that the current kind of financing model is also then plunges Africans, African countries and, and other global South countries into, into you know, this kind of perpetual kind of cycle of, of, of debt crises. That itself is, is you know, is, is something that we need to look at. That, that kind of that way of, of with the way that that financing is structured in that kind of way is something that's really that that needs attention particularly when we talking we we're talking about the kind of the, the the issues that we raised in the conversation about how you know like uh, an, an African country keeping its forests intact the people who, who who win from that the people who profit from that isn't just that African country it's the entire world you know so so there, there needs to be ways like new like new ways of thinking to in order to to do kind of innovative thinking about how to finance those kind of things because they do need to be paid for. There's two separate tracks when we talk about Africa. And I think the point that both you and Greg make in terms of that it's impossible to talk about a continent of 55 countries, 1.2 billion people using a single word. I fully agree with that. But when we look at the major African economies that represent the disproportionate share of Africa's total GDP, that South Africa, Kenya, uh, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and to some extent Angola, but not really, but just in terms of debt, Angola. Then the picture starts to change a little bit. Now, it was funny, it was just before the show today, I was looking at Nigeria's debt to GDP ratio, which is still only in the 35, 40%, well below the 50% threshold that the IMF says is dangerous to cross. So again, going back to our point, 
In many ways, there is a lot of negative hysteria about the situation in many parts of Africa. But at the same time, I think there are some very serious warning signals that are coming up. Uh, We have a show coming up very soon on the growing food security crisis. And the fact is that Africa imports 85% of its food. And given that there's rising inflation, there's disruptions in the global trading system, we're facing a big crisis on food. And as more debt servicing payments kind of are shipped off to places like China, that leaves less money for food. We're also seeing higher rates of conflict in a number of countries. In Ethiopia, in South Africa, there were problems with conflict earlier this year. Obviously, there's, there's, that's an issue in Guinea now. And that uncertainty creates anxiety among investors, which only boosts up the risk premium that then makes it more expensive to borrow. One other point that I want to make, which is while there's a lot of excitement about all these new bond offerings that are happening, and Greg touched on this, there's also concern within African civil society quite a bit that taking on this euro bond debt or even these so-called green bonds or blue bonds, these environmentally sustainable bonds, sounds good today. But the problem with these bonds is that, and, and, and all of this, this private creditor debt, is that the window to pay that back is much shorter than it is from concessional borrowing from governments. So the Chinese will give 30, 40 years sometimes to repay, whereas a bond will give 5, 10, 15 years, and there's a lot less flexibility there. So a lot to think about. While the situation may not be a full-blown crisis today, I have to say that there's big cause for concern in a number of major African economies. Yeah, it's it's really worrying. Um, I, I think you know one of one of the big issues also becomes, uh, you know, it's, it's not it's not only the, the the issue of the debt itself, but also the the the, the wider issue of how of how global South countries actually make money, you know, um, and the you know what they have to trade, what they what you know what what their position in the in in the that kind of global economy is, um, and that itself is a is a problem that kind of goes back you know kind of many many years back to the fact that many of these of these uh, economies started off as uh, or entered the global market as colonies um, you know so so those kind of structural the, the way that they, that they that they find that they structurally positioned within the global economy that itself is this kind of massive massive problem that one that's really coming to a head not only because of climate change but because of of the shifting demographics in you know kind of in the global north and the global south um you know so so yeah you know there, there's no I, I can't suggest any kind of like answer there but but it, it, it's a massive problem. It is a massive problem. And there was an interesting article circulating on Twitter, and I'm keen to read it, about uh, the decarbonization in the global north and how that's going to severely impact Africa that makes a lot of its money from selling hydrocarbons. And so the key question now is what can countries like Angola or even Ghana now that's discovered – oil as well, but also Nigeria, what can they do to diversify their economies in order so that they're not dependent that when the day comes that the US, Europe, and China, Japan do not want to buy oil anymore, that day is eventually coming. We don't know when it's going to come. What are they going to do? And this is a question I know you've been thinking about quite a bit, is this presents a really big problem at the same time as the African demographics are are really expanding in a very considerable way, which is exciting on one front. There's a really bulging youth population, the youngest population in the world, but that also presents a, a threat. Hey, we don't want to leave on such a dour note. There was some new data that's been coming out all week that the Chinese government has been trickling out 
and about global trade data. And there's some very encouraging numbers, actually, between China-Africa trade numbers. They're at $139 billion in two-way trade between January and August. And that is on on par to surpass last year's $187 billion. And right now, as we're trending at this moment, that $139 billion figure is a 40.5% increase over the same time last year. So a lot more China-Africa trade. Also, some good news came out today from the South African apple industry, which we included in our newsletter, that shipments of South African apples are up considerably. There's a lot of emphasis that we're seeing now and a lot of talk going on about expanding uh, African agricultural exports to China and opening the China market up to African produce. So that is something very encouraging and will hopefully help generate the jobs. And from the jobs, that'll generate the tax revenue that you've talked about, Cobus, in terms of what is how we're going to raise the money to pay back the debt and to build a more sustainable economic system. So let's leave our conversation there. These are the topics Every day that we talk about in our newsletter, I know those of you who wait till the end of the show always hear me say this. We're so proud of the work that we're doing in this newsletter that we really just want you to check it out. We've got Cliff in Nairobi who's writing some amazing stuff for us. He had an article on Kenya this week that really took off and was resonating in Washington, in Nairobi. It got picked up by a number of foreign ministries in Europe as well who called us for, for comment. Cobus does some amazing analysis, and we're doing the news every day, this in-depth, deep dive into China-Africa issues. Literally, nobody else in the world is doing what we're doing. There is no other team dedicated to deep diving on China-Africa, China-Middle East affairs the way that we're doing it. And that's why governments, journalists, embassies, NGOs all read this newsletter and access our site every day. We would love for you to check it out. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe, and uh, you can sign up for free for 30 days. If you don't like it, you can cancel any time, but we think that you'll like it, and we hope that you'll give it a try. So let's leave it there. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter, Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.